0: Comey, the uh, section chief for uh, endocrinology um, and a professor of medicine at Geisel. He's going to introduce today's speaker, and he's going to tell us first um, just a little bit about an exciting new opportunity sponsored by the Department of Medicine.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, so I'm going to make this very brief because some of you are at MM and heard this before, but we are starting a Department of Medicine case reports journal. You can access it from your. Uh, from the browser, from the DHMC browser. If you go up to departments and choose uh, tab D, you'll see there's a business place for that. But I actually need some content, so I'm looking for everyone who can to submit a case report uh, they'll be reviewed very expeditiously and sent, uh, and published out probably within two weeks of, of receiving it. It's your chance to sort of interact with your colleagues, and you can read more on that on that site. So I'm hoping everyone will at least take a look at it, and we're looking forward to having this be a way of spurring a lot of academic dialogue in the department. But let's get on to the main topic here, because this, uh, Ben has a rather uh, interesting presentation for us, and I don't want to take up any of his time, but our speaker today is Ben Bo, who is part of our youth movement in endocrinology as we get our new faculty. And he is our newest member. So Ben uh, got a Master's of Science in Physical Therapy in 2001, so he comes from a little bit different perspective, and then a Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine in 2010. He did his internal medicine here at DHMC, and then uh, did his fellowship with us in endocrinology, graduating in uh, 2015, and he's been on the faculty since as an assistant professor. Um, Ben has won Teaching and Humanism Awards uh, through his career. He's really quite a dedicated teacher, and I think you'll see that today in his presentation. He also won a CME Faculty Director Award for his CME program in Transgender Medicine a couple of years ago, which some of you may remember. Um, And he was actually uh, chosen to be a meet-the-professor presenter at the uh, International Endocrine Society meeting about transgender medicine topics. So he's building quite a reputation for himself and, of course, for us. Um, He also – I just want to point out he – He did get his expertise in this by pursuing on his own a uh, special program with the Children's Hospital in Boston in transgender medicine. So he's a nice example of somebody organizing their own education for their own uh, interests, and I think he's a real role model for that. Um, And he's actually established an adolescent transgender program here at DHMC and in the DH system, which uh, has really become very popular and is is actually quite busy. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Ben. Thanks. Thank you for that. So,
2: i will start today I have one disclosure, a few I'm going to be discussing medications that are used to so operate. my only disclosure, no financial disclosure. <clears throat> Our objectives today are going to discuss the terminology related to transgender individuals and gender non conforming individuals, we're going to discuss hormonal treatment of transgender adolescents and adults. So I will a time briefly reviewing the technology of puberty uh, and discuss how this relates to uh, transgender lessons, And we're going to discuss the fertility implications, which are quite unique for uh, this group of uh,
0: individuals.
2: I wanted to just start off and be uh, more informal and see sort of show of hands. How many of you have cared for transgender patients well, or maybe even you in uh, you know, your life have your child's friends or <coughs> Uh, yeah, every time I do this talk, it's uh, people that I see. So let's to the, the audience, so that shows um, So I want to discuss a few cases, and we're actually going to come back to these. So the first case is presented to my adolescent claim. So this is a 13-year-old individual assigned male at birth. And this individual has been insisting, I am a girl, since so age 3 or 4. Uh, And initially the parents resisted. I hear this a fair bit. Uh, They tried to just gently encourage more male clothing, male play, friends, etc. Really, it was not met with success. At age eight, she started wearing just while at home female clothing. At age 10, really, were much more persistent upon wearing female clothing and presenting socially as female, particularly at school. This child was presenting with their parents, this adolescent, to our clinic, very upset with the, pu- the changes of puberty that were of course, starting. And spontaneous erection was really one of the things that was most distressing for this individual. You can understand why some people identify strongly as female. This uh, was really distressing. So the example uh, was notable for uh, late stage two, early stage, andor uh, stage three uh, pubertal development. The second case that we'll come back to use, this is a, an adult patient now presenting to my clinic after long-term uh, formal use. This is a 38-year-old transgender male, assigned female, birth, who has been taking testosterone for 18 years. Nearly two decades of online therapy. He presents to my clinic with his female partner, a long-term partner, to discuss fertility options. He's been building a family. <coughs>
1: Microphone.
2: I think it is on. Yeah. Okay. Let's get that up a little bit higher. There you there. Can folks have trouble hearing me in the back? Or?
1: They couldn't hear you out in the wide world web.
2: All right. All right. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So, this couple is interested in family planning. No surprise, right? A couple in their 30s. So, we're going to touch on sort of what are their options for fertility. And in general, for transgender patients, what are options for fertility? So many of us think of gender as binary. We have males and we have females. We assume that sexual anatomy defines gender, and that's because for most people it does, and we call that cisgender.
1: It is increasingly
2: acknowledged that sexual anatomy does not define gender. And while many individuals identify as cisgender, patients in my clinic Uh, many of them do not. Gender is probably thought thought of more accurately as a continuum or a spectrum. We have male male typical behavior on one side and typical female behavior on the other, and some individuals falling somewhere in between that. Now we also have individuals who present or identify with a non-conventional gender identity. Gender fluid might be how an individual may define their identity. So their gender is fluid. At times they may feel more comfortable female, at other times more male. Now I'll explain that in my clinic, really the vast majority of patients are transgender and they are seeking hormonal transition. So they do identify generally more typical male or female. But I will say at our adolescent clinic and my colleagues who work in adolescent clinics, we are seeing more youth. Uh, and even some adults presenting as gender fluid, uh, which raises a, a, another set of question, questions. We also occasionally uh, interact with individuals that describe themselves as agender, agender so they don't define themselves uh, as typical male or female. Okay. So what is a transgender individual? This is somebody whose gender identity does not match their sex assigned at birth. And while transgender really has replaced the term the medical term transsexual we we now call these individuals or refer to them as transgender males and female transgender men and women still have to remember that the transgender term is still an umbrella term and it encompasses many different identities as you can see from this uh, pretty picture here and and again most of the cases we'll talk about today uh, and examples are transgender men and women which in the past, would have been referred to as transsexuals. So let's talk a little bit about the history is pretty interesting as, uh, regarding transgender individuals and uh, specifically the medical intervention um, for uh, treating transgender individuals. It really starts all the way back to the 20s and 30s, really the era, the era, excuse me, of sex steroid discovery, uh, ultimately leading right to our. Uh, first oral contraceptives several decades later. Uh, This this is the first um, documented case of a uh, transgender male. This was an assigned female at birth individual. He was a physician uh, in England who transitioned. He was the first documented case of a natal female taking testosterone for transition. Uh, Had uh, quite a successful career. We can't talk about uh, transgender medicine without talking about Dr. Harry Benjamin was an American endocrinologist uh, who first started seeing patients in the 40s. And he was seeing a lot of patients who had failed what was at the time the standard, which was conversion therapy. Very ineffective, right? This was used in individuals who were gay and lesbian with uh, no success uh, and probably much harm, and also in transgender individuals. And he was the first, he actually, his first patient was an endocrinologist and saw an adolescent patient Um, And he was the first to say, and aptly state, if you cannot change the mind to fit the body, then why not change the body to fit the mind? And this was really revolutionary. Uh, This is in the 1940s. He would go on to treat hundreds and probably actually thousands of transgender patients uh, and became really loved by the community and uh, really is sort of the father of transgender medicine, if you will. Christine Jorgensen um, was the first publicized case of a transgender individual. She came back to the US from Denmark where she underwent gender confirmation surgery, which at the time was called sex reassignment surgery, to the headlines, USGI returns as a blonde bombshell. She received a lot of notoriety and publicity um, and really was uh, quite a a good role model for transgender individuals, and she was the first public account of this, and and some of you may even remember this. Uh, in the uh, early 50s, maybe just a a few. Dr. Benjamin published his accounts. I actually own a copy of this book. It was a gift, and it's uh, actually quite a good book. Uh, Not uh, fully accurate at this point, but he published his accounts of working with transgender individuals, and this was in 1966. Um, Go back for a second, sorry. So in 1987, the DSM first listed uh, gender identity disorder um, under much under much controversy and is still uh, controversial uh, to this day um, really dr benjamin 's work uh, ultimately resulted in an adolescent transgender clinic, the first of its kind in the '90s uh, in amsterdam and this is Dr. Louis Goren, an endocrinologist who uh, played a large role in founding that clinic. That clinic would go on to Um, Spur Dr. Norman Speck's work at Boston Children's Hospital, who I had the uh, great privilege to work with. And we'll talk about these clinics a little bit later. More recently, in 2013, under much pressure from uh, providers and the transgender community, gender identity disorder, a pathologizing term, has been reclassified as gender dysphoria. This is still an area of controversy should transgender individuals uh, be listed in in a psychiatric manual. Um, We can talk about that at the end. And then, you know, really recently, this has become quite an area of uh, topic in the media. Some people have described 2014 as the uh, the year of the transgender experience. Uh, Transgender became a household term around uh, around that time. And then earlier this year, really uh, wonderful edition of National Geographic, um, devoted entirely to uh, gender and has a fairly large section on transgender uh, individuals. So, really a wonderful resource. I highly recommend it. I was given a copy by Dr. Albert right here. So, so in 2009, the Endocrine Society published clinical practice guidelines on the treatment of transgender individuals in conjunction with the organizations you see there. It contains 157 references from the medical literature with the caveat that there's still fairly limited uh, large-scale research uh, and certainly no uh, randomized control trials, but a growing body of research. So I wanted to just tell you a little bit about my clinic here. I have quite a diverse clinic. I see patients from age 8 all the way up to 80. 80 is the oldest patient I've seen who's presented for uh, transition. Um, both Dr. Turco and I have heard this when patients present uh, later. Oh, you got to hurry up. We, wanna, we need to transition, and we're, we're getting older here. Um, but typically, my patients are in their 20s and 30s, um, the adult patients that present. The adolescent population has been one that has uh, really been growing quite quite rapidly. Uh, Dr. Nancy Cherist and I work up in uh, pediatrics here in Lebanon uh, one day per month uh, at our adolescent clinic, and we are supported by uh, Alice Berliner, a social worker who joined us today, and Susan Wasp, a child life specialist, who have helped us to start an adolescent peer group, um, which is a great, a great addition to have them. So this is just a look at sort of the number of patients, and this is over the last uh, mostly two, do, but even during yeah, my fellowship, you know, three or four years of patients. Um, and quite a lot for a short period of time, and I'm really seeing an increase in referrals even over the last <laughs> six months. And in preparation for this talk, I just looked through my sort of clinic for this month to see, you know, how many patients do I see in a month? And the month of September, I'm going to see 12 new transgender individuals. Um, so, so it's quite, quite a lot of uh, patients. So what do I mean by gender-affirming care? This is more than just prescribing hormones for these individuals. It involves office staff education um, so that we can be a friendly, welcoming environment to these patients, and that's both our, you know, person at the front desk and our um, nurses who are rooming patients and taking calls. We place referrals when they're indicated for surgery, other procedures as, as needed spend a fair bit of time, probably more time than I should, adv- or, 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 uh, advocating for insurance coverage and, and uh, providing uh, documents for legal gender change. And the reason we have to spend a lot of time advocating for an insurance for insurance coverage is there are still riders on policies and, and uh, exclusions um, that basically state, uh, you know, insurance does not provide care for these individuals. Fortunately, that is changing, and, and changing rather rapidly, uh, but there's still much work to be done there. Educating families and allies, particularly with our transgender youth, but certainly uh, young adults as well. And then screening and support for substance abuse, depression, anxiety, uh, suicide, and bullying, uh, very important part. And then preventive health care, family planning, as we'll talk today, STI screening, and of course, hormones. So why do we treat transgender individuals? Well, data has shown improved psychological well-being, very high satisfaction rate in this population with little to no regret. And alarmingly, a very high suicide attempt rate and also suicide rate as we will discuss. Uh, Studies have documented 40 to 45% attempt rate in this population, which is staggering Um, and, and one of my biggest motivators for working with youth. And that compares to the general population suicide attempt rate of about
0: 4%.
2: So prevalence, how many individuals are we talking about? I get asked this question a lot. Old data based out of the gender clinics in Europe, really from the 60s, 70s, maybe even a little bit in the early 80s, suggested this is quite rare. One in 30,000 natal males transitioning uh, to females, so transgender women, and, and then at the time, what they thought, the even more rare, rare transgender male, one in a 100,000. And this data was largely based on individuals who underwent gender confirmation surgery. And as we'll discuss, not all of my patients desire surgery, surgical reassignment, uh, some do, but not all. This was really underrepresentative. More recent, a telephone study in Massachusetts, a telephone survey in Massachusetts, of 28,000 households found that about a half a percent identified as transgender. A similar but larger study in 19 states, um, sponsored by UCLA uh, very recently, suggested a similar prevalence of 0.6% identifying as transgender. So we've gone from one fan in Fenway Park, seats something like 30,000, to one in 100. That doesn't project, uh, one in 200, excuse me, that doesn't project as well, but, um, you know, one person in this room. So gender identity development. You know, what what is responsible for the development of, of gender identity? Really, we don't know. It, it's, this is quite complex. And the nature and nurture debate went on, and still to some degree does go on. And the nurture debate was really pushed by a group of psychologists uh, and and physicians at Johns Hopkins. And a psychologist, John Money, really was strongly pushing the nurture uh, theory with tragic consequences. Those of you who have heard of the John and Joan case, this is an infant male who had a botched circumcision, really lost his penis. Due to the severe um, uh, complications from the procedure, parents thought, "How can this? How can we this little boy grow up without his genitalia as a male?" Brought him to this clinic all the way down from Canada, and Dr. Money thought, "Well, we can nurture a female. We'll encourage female behavior. Change the name to a female name. Time of puberty, we'll use estrogen, sex steroids, and induce a female puberty." And oh, wait, he has an identical male twin, so this would be a very nice study. This, and he purported it as a successful case of nurturing gender identity. Boy, it couldn't be further from the truth. This individual was asserting all throughout childhood I'm a boy, wanting to play with boys, didn't understand, was never told what happened. And finally, at puberty, this got so severe uh, that the child, after they stopped going to the clinic, and later on, closer to uh, late teenage years, he would transition to male, had surgery to remove the estradiol, created or the estrogen-induced breast tissue, underwent a uh, surgery to create a phallus, um, and lived as a male. Tragic story, because this individual committed suicide at age 38, and in his sort of works near the end of his life, he actually came out and publicly talked about the story, or we would not, I would not be here today explaining these details, and his hope was that this would not happen to another child It really helped um, define the intersex movement while he's not exactly an example of somebody who's intersex, but um, helped be an advocate for that community. So let's talk a little bit about fetal development and, and what we know of sexual differentiation. So sexual differentiation of the genitals occurs quite early in fetal development. The brain, the the differentiation occurs quite a bit later. And going back to this nature versus nurture theory, a very nice, interesting New England Journal study, looking at cloacal extrophy. So this is a severe congenital malformation. Abdominal organs are external to the the body. There are severe midline defects, and often genital defects, uh, severe. And when they are severe, these male XY individuals are raised as female. And this study followed and looked at their gender identity as they they matured and went through adolescence. And despite being raised as females, given female hormones, put through a female puberty, uh, ultimately, eight out of 16 of these individuals transitioned to live as males. And it's fascinating when you read this article that all but one of them, the 16, small study, uh, but a rare condition, all but one had strong preferences to play with Toys to play with male uh, typical toys, despite not knowing any of this background. And you wonder, over time, how many more of that, the remaining 8 of 16 may transition. Uh, I don't know, but something to think about. Look at a little different model, but looking at hormone exposure in utero, we look at females with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, so higher androgen levels, um, and this... These individuals, for the most part, are classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, so even higher androgen levels. Three out of 143 uh, reported a male gender identity. So, much greater rates of gender dysphoria than we, about fourfold, uh, than you'd expect based on the prevalence data I showed you earlier. So, uh, certainly not conclusive connecting the hormone link with gender identity, but suggests there may be something there. And then if we look at individuals with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, so these are XY individuals that have a mutation of the androgen receptor, they are universally, have a universal female gender identity. So let's quickly, let's go back to transgender individuals for a minute, talking about, well, what makes somebody transgender? Let's look at the concordance rate. So if you look at twins, review all the literature where we have twin where one twin is transgender when we look at monozygotic twins so identical twins and one twin is transgender 39% likelihood that the other twin is also transgender and we look at fraternal twins one twin was is transgender there were there were no um, transgender uh, twins in the pair so suggesting something maybe hinting at a genetic component um, but Certainly not conclusive. So forgive my drawing. If I can't find a a, a picture I like, I'm going to make it myself um, and on the kitchen table. So we're going to talk a little bit about puberty. And we can't talk about puberty and not talk about GnRH and GnRH neurons. This is gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And it makes a really fascinating migration during fetal development from the nasal placode where these neurons originate it travels up past the olfactory bulb to its final landing destination in the hypothalamus in the hypothalamus so individuals let's back up for a second so this fascinating journey when those neurons fail to make that journey this is something called anosmic hypogonadotropic hypogonadism so what we call Kalman syndrome these are people they can't they lack the sense of smell anosmia and they fail to go through puberty they do not Now, upstream from the hypothalamus, more recent discovery, (laughs) we have cis-peptin neurons. These are also highly specialized neurons that really we think of as the gatekeeper for puberty and what ultimately start the process of puberty. Now, in the hypothalamus, we have the GnRH neurons, this highly specialized neuron that sends gonadotropin-releasing hormone down to the pituitary, where the pituitary then, uh, with GnRH receptor, receptors, produces follicle-stimulating hormone and LH, which then stimulate the gonads to produce sex steroids. So how does, you know, how does this talk relate to puberal suppression in, in adolescents? Well, these are adolescents who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, They've started into puberty, typically 10 or stage two or three or even slightly beyond. Their gender dysphoria worsens with puberty. And by using a puberty blocking medication, you can arrest the development of undesired secondary sex characteristics. And when you work with adult patients, you, transgender patients, you can see why this would be helpful. When an individual has gone through a full male puberty, you could see how that could be difficult to then fit in and live life as a female, it requires surgical procedures, a lot of years of treatment, have many years of electrolysis. All of these things can be quite expensive. So you can see how there could be a benefit to stopping puberty. So we use the same medications that are used in precocious puberty, so early puberty, when puberty happens um, earlier than, than expected. And this is really, we're talking about Lupron, so Luprali Depot and histrelin, um, which is an implant, Lupron is an injection, as you probably know. This is looking at the structure, so native GnRH is at the top, and you can see Lupron just below that, and they differ in this sixth glycine position. There's a substitution there, and that's to help with the half-life. So that these drugs are around for a while, and you don't have to give them on a daily basis. Now you can see histrelin also has that um, a sixth position is also changed. And these are quite potent medications. So let's look at you think, well, how does a GNRH agonist stop the release of gonadotropins? How does this stop puberty? Well, they have this initial stimulatory effect. When you, have, when you give, when pulse, native GNRH is given in a pulsatile manner, or if we infuse GNRH in a pulsatile manner, we get a stimulatory effect of FSH and LH. Now, when it's given in a continuous uh, fashion, well, there's this initial stimulatory effect. But then you actually see a suppression, a downregulation of FSH and LH. Uh, and this is likely due to the um, downregulation of GNRH receptors in the pituitary. <laughs> That's what animal models suggest. So we don't treat pu- prepubertal children. First of all, there's nothing to treat. And more importantly than that, the persistent rates of gender dysphoria are significantly lower than in adolescents. So the Dutch protocol, remember that was the first clinic to start treating transgender adolescents. They call their protocol, and, and we'll use this term a little bit, 12, 16, and 18. So at 12, or at the time puberty starts, transgender adolescents who qualify can be started on puberty-blocking medications. At 16, or slightly before, depending on maturity, they can be started on hormone therapy, which would induce the feminizing and masculinizing characteristics uh, of their desired puberty, and of their gender identity. And at 18, in the Netherlands, the vast majority of transgender individuals will undergo uh, some type of surgery. And typically for transgender women, that involves creation of a vagina, vaginoplasty, um, orchiectomy, removal of the testes, and in transgender men, uh, hysterectomy and bilateral oophorectomy, and also chest surgery to remove breast tissue. Uh, but that is only if they progress through enough female puberty that they had breast tissue. So, as I mentioned, this is only in candidates that have underwent an evaluation that they have gender dysphoria, that it is persistent, and it is worsening with puberty. <clears throat> so we can use these; they halt puberty. They're fully reversible, as we know from their use in precocious puberty. You stop these medications, and within. Uh, Months to up to a year, uh, puberty uh, resumes. So we talked about the initial stimulatory effect, followed by hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism. So let's talk a little bit about the persistent rates of gender dysphoria. So lots of data suggests very high persistence rates. When an individual who goes through, starts through puberty, persists with gender dysphoria, they will have gender dysphoria as an adult. This is much lower in children, so pre-puberty. Earlier data uh, suggests about 20% of these individuals will persist. More recent data seems to be a little bit higher. It sort of probably likely depends on the group they're studying and, and after how they classify gender dysphoria. Uh, The most recent uh, study out of the Netherlands suggesting a 37% persistence rate into adulthood of gender dysphoria. One thing, those of us that work in gender clinics uh, and those people who are uh, providing the research, the more severe the dysphoria, the more likely it is to persist into adulthood. Again, you don't know until the pubertal changes begin. So the arguments for blocking puberty... We talked about easier physical transition in the future, um, especially for transgender women. Data that will review reduced rates of psychological distress, reduced risk of suicide, and the fact that this is fully reversible and that this can be used as a time to put puberty on pause, on hold, allow them to explore their gender, meet with their uh, counselor, and discuss this. Um, And again, it's fully reversible, so you can... You can stop and go back. Arguments against, maybe we're perpetuating the gender binary um, by putting individuals, right? A transgender female has to look a certain, or to be female, you have to look a certain way. Um, Also, the thought, maybe you're starting down a path, that once you're on this path, that maybe once they're put on blockers, they're not going to to go back. And then the unknown long-term side effects we'll touch upon a, a little bit. So the Dutch Adolescent Cohort, so this is studying uh, 55 of the early um, patients in the Dutch clinic. They assessed well-being, psychological function, and gender dysphoria. In all of these individuals, the gender dysphoria resolved when they were put on puberty-blocking medications. Their well-being was reported by various um, methods uh, as greater or equal to age-matched peers. They were vocationally similar to their peers, so similar types of job, employment rates. Uh, no regret was seen at any stage. And seven, it really amazingly, 71% reported that social transition was easy. Uh, and I have to say that uh, my adolescent patients that transitioned uh, earlier uh, report very similar experiences. It uh, seems to be that transition makes sense, transitioning earlier in life. Um, be a smoother, a smoother path, possibly. So let's talk about the hormone therapy. So when individuals are 16 or close, um, we can use feminizing and masculinizing hormones. And then in adult patients as well that present to transition in their 20s, 30s, and and beyond. In transgender women, we use oral estradiol, this is generic, sort of beta estradiol. Typical adult doses would be between 2 and 8 milligrams per day, typically taken once per day. In adult women who have not been on puberty blocking medications and have not undergone a orchiectomy, or so removal of the testes, we use an antiandrogen. And in this country, invariably we use spironolactone, inexpensive drug. It's uh, well-tolerated um, with really no side effects in these patients. And these patients can expect feminization and, and changes within as, you know, as early as two to three months, but ultimate full redistribution of body fat uh, and the full uh, changes that they can expect, full breast development can take up to several years. So for transgender males, typically we use injectable testosterone. The typical adult dose would be about 50 to 80 milligrams a week. In adolescence would be somewhat less than this. <coughs> Uh, sorry, t- uh, testosterone topical gel is al- also an option. Uh, don't use this very much in my practice. It's expensive. I've seen some skin irritation with it. I, patients tend to be very happy, happy with once-weekly injectable <laughs> testosterone. And in, in our clinic, uh, we use this in a subcutaneous manner, which is a little bit different than um, how most clinics use testosterone. And I'll show you some data on that from our clinic. So this is with these are the first 22 patients I saw as a fellow. I had been down in Boston and seen a provider use testosterone subcutaneously, so a much shorter needle. When we we're working with these adolescents, it was a little cumbersome to think of them um, injecting with an intramuscular needle, uh, a little bit challenging. So it really helped me think more about using this in our adult patients and older patients transitioning. And this is just subcutaneous, the same generic testosterone that we've always been using. And as represented here, their testosterone dose, milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and really this translates to about 50 to 75 milligrams of testosterone given uh, once a week. And, uh, and with mid-range to high-range male serum testosterone levels, these were all adult patients. So very, and patients are very satisfied with this. Those that had switched from intramuscular to subcutaneous really uh, were quite happy with this, and, and I was quite pleased with the levels. And we were actually able to use a lower dose than they had been on, in, on intramuscular, the theory that we're not seeing this peak and trough, trough effect uh, with, twice, with once every other week administration. We saw nice steady levels. So are these masculinizing and feminizing hormone therapies is this safe? So this is mortality data looking at the cohort in the Netherlands. The median follow-up was actually quite long, 18 and a half years. Uh, looking at, and and for transgender research, they're looking at 1,300 patients. That's quite a lot. Three-quarters, or approximately three-quarters, were transgender females. And you'll see, as I I alluded to earlier, vast majority of these individuals in the Netherlands, procedures are covered by their national health insurance. So the vast majority underwent uh, at least gonadectomy, and uh, typically they had other uh, gender-conforming surgeries as well. Uh, These rates are quite a bit different from my clinic. Uh, where probably closer to a third to a half of my transgender women ultimately have orchiectomy. And actually, quite a f- only very few of my transgender men undergo hysterectomy, which we'll talk about um, when We come back to that last case. So the tran- in this mortality study, so the transgender women had a 51% increased mortality rate. And this was really due to HIV, suicide, uh, drug use, and to a much lesser extent, coronary artery disease. The transgender men, there was no significant increased risk in mortality, and really, this was, a, this was a smaller percent, right? There was only a quarter of those 1,300 patients, and they were a younger cohort, so it's uh, tough to say. Wow. So these are looking at the nearly 1,000 transgender females, and really what alarming to, to see the HIV, the mortalities. This is standardized mortality rate, comparing them to the general population of the Netherlands, and they actually compared them based on natal sex. So we were comparing to natal males. There's a 30-fold increased increased risk of mortality due to HIV, 13-fold higher mortality due to illicit drug use, uh, and suicide, as we discussed earlier, 15-fold higher risk of suicide. Um, and just the transgender male, again, are, Younger cohort, um, a little bit harder to say. Similar but much smaller Belgian study. Remember, I said most of this data is coming out of these European gender clinics um, and not the U.S. 252 individuals with a shorter period on hormone therapy, a little over seven years. Really, the transgender women, their cardiovascular mortality was equivalent to natal males. There was, this is interesting, there's a higher prevalence of type 2 diabetes prior to taking hormone therapy. Why might that be? Well, they're all seeing an endocrinologist in a gender clinic. So I don't think that has anything to do with uh, hormone therapy. Um, Again, similar findings to our, our other study that we just discussed, transgender women having a much higher mortality rate from suicide. There was no increase in mortality due to malignancy. So one thing we're always cautious with, with estrogen, whether it's a natal female for contraception or a transgender woman, talking about risk of thromboembolism. And this is a a real risk. Louis Gorin in the clinic in the Netherlands in 2008 uh, published his cohort, looked at 2,200 transgender women on estradiol, uh, and he found no increase in BTE when they were on beta-estradiol, the estradiol that we prescribe in our clinic. When he parsed out the individuals who are taking ethanol estradiol, that's the typical component of an oral contraceptive in this country, uh, he found a 6 to 8% incidence over 28-5 years of VTE. And their clinic, that was the earlier generation they had used ethanol estradiol, and now more recent are using a generic beta-estradiol. So the uh, Belgian similar, similar study in, in Belgium, looking at their data in 2013, uh, 5% of a small group of transgender women developed VTE. This was typically in the first three years of estrogen therapy, and important to note that 10 out of 11 of these women had at least one VTE risk factor. So the typical smoking, uh, thrombophilia that was unknown at the time of starting therapy, immobilization, either around the time of surgery or not. So these are times when we counsel patients and we're very careful, stop hormone therapy well in advance of any uh, surgical procedures and only start it once they're fully mobile and out of that inflammatory state of surgery. Uh, the Netherland data in 2014 uh, generic beta-estradiol showed a 1% incidence of VTE in a, in a little larger cohort, 1,000 trans women over five and a half years. So there's a risk, but I think it's, it's quite small, uh, especially if we're cautious, and we counsel patients appropriately about smoking, <laughs> stopping hormone treatment around the time of a uh, perioperative and postoperative period. So one of the early concerns around using hormone therapy, people thought, well, if I prescribe hormone therapy, we're going to see all these hormonally-driven cancers. Well, we, really, we haven't seen that. Um, Cross section. This is a cross-sectional study uh, looking at breast cancer, Uh, from 1975 to 2011. This was an academic gender clinic in the Netherlands, the same clinic uh, that I'm referring to. 2,300 transgender women and nearly 800 transgender men, and they had an impressive 70000 person year of hormone exposure. And the breast cancer rate in both transgender men who underwent mastectomy, if they went through a full natal puberty, and transgender women who develop breast tissue with estrogen, their cancer rate of the breast was comparable to natal males, so very, very low, and particularly in Europe, a very low uh, rate. So this segues into preventive health screening. So there are no evidence-based established guidelines for screening transgender individuals. So we screen based on natal sex. Um, PSA is still an important thing. We do not the re- P- prostate is not removed in uh, gender conforming surgeries. Uh, So we still monitor PSA with the caveat that with lower antigen levels, the prostate-specific antigen will be lower, but we're looking at velocity and changes. I do not recommend routine mammography in either transgender women or men because of the previous slide uh, and data. Uh, PAP tests in transgender males are indicated as they would be for a natal female. As long as those parts are in place, we screen so some bar- You know, what are the barriers to providing high-quality care? This is a little tongue-in-cheek when I say the electronic medical record. Uh, but for this group of individuals, this really is true. Um, we're making progress here with our medical record, uh, having options other than the binary males and females. And you could see how this could be difficult because a patient presents to your clinic. Uh, you don't know they're transgender, and they're still listed with their natal sex in the computer. It could cause for a difficult first interaction with this patient. And get things off on the wrong foot. Um, we've had a little workaround where in my clinic we use the snapshot and the, under the problem list to put their um, preferred pronouns and preferred name, but now EDH is uh, working on a uh, very nice, I've been in discussion with them about a, a nice way of documenting gender. <coughs> that should be launching very soon. They're already on ball with the, having the correct, the preferred name. You know, many of you may have seen this now in parentheses. Other barriers, so cost of puberty suppressing medications is is great. Uh, Lupron is an expensive medication. Uh, Histrelin is a little bit less expensive, uh, but difficult to get reimbursed for. So this is a major issue when treating adolescents. And there's variable health insurance coverage, as I discussed earlier. So let's go back to the cases. So this um, 13-year-old natal male whose uh, gender is affirmed female, who's upset with pubertal changes. It's diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Seeing a uh, psychologist at 13 and a half. I've started uh, this patient on Lupron, so G- a GnRH agonist, which is an injection into the muscle every three months to put puberty on hold. Um, she was, if you remember, Tanner stage two, and definitely Tanner stage three by the time we had started a GnRH agonist. Uh, she is thriving, she's doing uh, very well academically, socially, uh, and she even plays sports. She's on the female um, ski team and a few other, few other activities, so very active um, and, and just doing wonderfully. Uh, a The longer they're on puberty blocking medications, the more apt I am to get a bone density measurement, um, and she spent about 18 months or so on uh, Lupron, so I got a baseline DEXA scan using a Z-score, so an age and and, and in this case uh, sex-matched individual, so a natal male, uh, and really only seeing what I would consider uh, a small uh, reduction, which is expected. We've delayed this person from their peers by 18 months. This is a time of rapid and important time of bone accrual, and I expect she's now only within the past, what I say, six months been on estradiol, Um, and we're watching uh, bone age, uh, height development, and um, after one year of being on estrogen, I will look at her bone density, but the data suggests that these individuals fall behind their peers for a period of time, and with the reintroduction of sex steroids, this time, the sex steroid that matches their gender identity, their bone development, uh, does rise. Uh, This is still something we are very cautious about, and we are watching uh, the data closely on this, and the NIH has now funded in the U.S. Um, studies on transgender adolescents so I expect more data to come out in the next you know, five to 10 years. And certainly the Dutch are beginning to publish their data for their, from their first cohort. So the second case, this is a 38 year old transgender male who was interested in fertility with his partner. After discussing this uh, at length, this person did desire a biologic child. And, and so uh, with that goal in mind, I asked this patient to stop uh, testosterone treatment. These are labs two months after stopping uh, HRT, if you will, and really um, very normal uh, female, quote-unquote, uh, labs of the gonadal axis. This is early follicular phase, as you can see from the uh, FSH, uh, um, moderate estradiol levels and low progesterone levels, an entirely normal female testosterone uh, level. You get a sense, you know, no idea. After an individual being on hormone therapy for 18 years, what would their ovarian reserve be? I looked at anti-mullerian hormone, which is being increasingly used for uh, measurement uh, or uh, an impression of the ovarian reserve, and his was uh, quite robust uh, for age 38, 3.56. And a transvaginal ultrasound revealed an follicle count greater than 15, which is also, uh, for age 38, quite nice. Now, this is just showing the sort of the same labs I told you with the addition that uh, I had uh, him present to the lab for uh, when I anticipated he might be ovulating, and we confirmed that. This is now three and a half to four months off of testosterone, uh, nice normal ovulation. So their options for pregnancy could have donor sperm, and that is likely still to be an option for uh, his partner. Uh, there have been transgender males who have carried pregnancies. This has been in the news. I have colleagues who have cared for these patients Um, And then what my patient had opted to go through was controlled ovarian stimulation. So really we're talking about IVF with what we say uh, co-IVF, his uh, partner will carry the pregnancy. And he went through two cycles of uh, IVF, tolerated it very, very well, um, and has two uh, embryos. And hopefully sometime in the future when I present you more of my data, I'll have more to tell you about that. So in this case, long-term androgen use did not appear to deplete the primordial follicle pool. Really interesting, um, and I look forward to seeing more case reports in the literature uh, like this and, and see if they match uh, the experience of, of my clinic. We have extremely limited data on fertility preservation in this population. <coughs> this is just a little interesting. I want to pop this up just showing the something I think that was overlooked in the past. I think the goal was to tr- for people to transition and maybe... Um, maybe they had already had children, so it wasn't the, the, as important as the young, young individuals that are presenting to the clinic now. This is transgender men in, in Belgium. Uh, well, have a little more than half-desired children. shouldn't surprise us at all. Uh, 38% say that they would have considered either egg preservation, a newer technology, or uh, embryo cryopreservation, uh, an older technology that's... So that a little bit of a surprise. I counsel all patients on fertility. We discuss this. Um, cost is an issue. Donor sperm, so not, not cheap. IVF, really, that's a ballpark number. It really depends on how well people respond. Half the cost of IVF is the use of the stimulatory medications. Uh, gonadotropins in synthetic form are very expensive, um, so that can range quite a bit. In a young person, it could be as low as 8000 in the Older person, more like 20000 And then if somebody uses a gestational carrier that's not their spouse, it can be quite expensive, as you could imagine. Fertility in transgender women, uh, a little bit easier, uh, shall I say. uh, Prior to hormone therapy introduction, sperm cryopreservation. The total cost, every time I, I give a talk and this comes up, the cost goes down. I look into it. It's now probably about $500, and that includes some required FDA testing for genetic material. Of course, there's also a yearly storage fee. Um, What I I did not talk about today, and it's a more lengthy discussion, but in transgender adolescents who we blocked the native puberty, uh, this puberty is blocked quite early. These individuals will not be able to have biologic children. Um, They do not, they're they're not mature enough to, to allow that. I think sometime in the future, hopefully in, in, probably in my lifetime and in, in many of my patients' reproductive lifetime, I, I suspect there'll be methods to overcome that. The um, field, field of reproductive endocrinology has really made um, significant strides in the last 20 years and uh, even in the last five years. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that. Um, again, most of these individuals will say, i uh, willing to give up that piece and, and live as their affirmed gender. So in summary, transgender and gender variant individuals are more common uh, than original prevalence data suggested. Uh, I believe, with routine uh, monitoring, that hormone therapy is uh, safe and effective treatment of gender dysphoria in both adults and uh, adolescents. I think the uh, early data in adolescents uh, does show that this is safe. We have much more work to do on many fronts. Uh, many fronts, both collecting data. Uh, really uh, fighting for equality for these individuals. Uh, There's a bill being proposed in the uh, New Hampshire House that would uh, prevent Medicaid spending for gender dysphoria or treatment of transgender individuals, which would be a major step backwards. um, And and I hope that nothing comes of that. So I just want to quickly, we're having our Transgender Family Day uh, on November 11th. Uh, Dr. Nancy Cherist and I Uh, are hosting this with the help of uh, Susan Berliner, our social worker, and Susan Wasp, our child life specialist. We're really uh, excited about this. This is something I've wanted to do for a very long time. Um, We're really looking forward to this. You know, many of my transgender adolescents, or not many, some of my transgender adolescents have not met another transgender individual, and some parents haven't had the opportunity to speak with other parents. So our uh, monthly group is a, a mechanism to make that happen, and I hope this conference is really a way for some uh, community connections to form and uh, kids to have fun, and we're also gonna provide education. We have some excellent speakers coming. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that's not for providers, but it's for your patients uh, who are transgender adolescents and their families. So resources, hopefully our clinic is a a resource. I I love it when you guys, folks call me or send me messages or emails about patients. Um, I love to be a resource for this area. Um, so please don't, do never, never hesitate when you have a question. There's no question, that's, that's not a good question as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so please use us as a resource. Um, WPATH, a great site for uh, standards of care on this topic. The Endocrine Society also. And Fenway Health has a very nice online resource site that I use and direct patients to. So well, just a few quick thanks. Uh, uh, Dr. Turco, who's in the audience today. Uh, I owe a lot to, and I thank you for having the courage to see these patients when others didn't. Um, really a wonderful mentor and role model. Dr. Norm Speck, I have similar feelings for him, excellent uh, mentor for me. And Dr. Allison Simon that's an excellent uh, example of patient care. Uh, my clinic, my uh, colleague, Dr. Nancy Cheris, we had a lot of fun upstairs in pediatrics. Um, Alice and Susan, wonderful additions. And Laura Danforth, uh, wonderful nurse. She has been so good with our patients. Um, She caught on so quick about pronouns and and names, and I get more compliments about her, Uh, good care of my transgender patients than Gail as well. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Mm
0: few minutes for questions, and already hands coming up,
1: so. Could you say something about who, who and how you work with schools in the area? Yeah, that's a great question. It's
2: important, a very important area. Um, we get calls from school counselors. Um, really, a lot of times, I provide documentation. So children, that want to play. adolescents that lessons want to play, and working on their firm gender identity. And they get asked, is this appropriate? And, White uh, of support. Um, we've had a group of school nurses here just uh, really within the last year providing information just on uh, gender variant uh, children and adolescents and, and, uh, and gender and well. So it's only a small piece of what, what we do. Uh, it isn't a very important piece. And um, there have been some people who really within the school uh, councils and such that provide a lot of resources
1: uh, two related questions. I'm curious if there's any animal models around uh, transgender behavior, I guess. And, and, and secondly, there's been certainly a lot of concern around environmental and it's been disruptors and its impact, really at least on amphibians and uh, lower order on the uh, genetic scale. And I'm sure there's no human epidemiology around it, so I'm curious clear that endocrine, environmental endocrine disruptors have impacted sexual development. And male fertility now, And male fertility. And so, um, this—I uh, maybe just speculating, but it begins with this issue of whether there are any animal models, and then whether there are any, any natural observations. Yeah,
2: we, I, mean, I don't come out very fast, off, I want to the most literature on that, I can tell you, but read where, you know, young animals who had prenatal Hormonal exposures and you know, female animal you with know, testosterone exposures can display more natural more behaviors, um, but I've not seen anything really directly when we we're discussing that as far as gender variance. You know. But definitely, yeah, we do not know what makes someone your gender. Uh, we do not know what how gender identity is complex. I don't think it's going to be as simple as one gene or a simple hormone exposure. More complex than that, with respect to epigenetics, that in the
0: environment, the environment, the timing of the hormones, the receptor exists. Someday we'll, we'll figure this out. You know, I assume at least that that's a little bit better. Hi, two actually unrelated questions. One is um, Have you thought about also having this sort of social event for people in the community who have? children relatives who are gender questioning. I'm, I'm assuming you don't want to open this up for your patients to the the, the whole world, because it's an opportunity for them to interact with each other, but there are lots of people in the community people that may not... Well, or just people who haven't come to you in the clinic yet, but maybe yeah, interested in getting more information. Yeah, this is this is ongoing. plan really does this quite okay. well. There are a couple of local and, chapters. Um, and this... And that, that is a very good forum for that. Um, <laughs> the, the second question is, you mentioned the very beginning, the fact that gender dysphoria is still in the DSM-5. Um, if you if that comes out of the DSM-5, is it not is a, you know, an aberration, but a normal spectrum of behavior, do you think that will have an influence on the ability to get people get insurance coverage? Mm-hmm.
2: My personal feelings on this, it needs to come out of the DSM. Homosexuality came out of the DSM in the 70s. Um, it, this means... The counter argument, which is a valid and good argument, is that this provides a diagnosis and a structure for payment and reimbursement and entrance into the system. Uh, there are other ways to do that. You know, so I, don't, I, I think it should come out. It will. Um, it's a matter of time. That's my personal opinion.
0: Let's take one more question, I can So Ben,
2: thank you for a great talk on a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I guess Oscar Wilde said it best, one's real life is often the life that one does not need. Um I just wonder if you could comment on what I have a million questions, but why do you think Europe is so far ahead of us in terms of understanding the problems? Are there social norms different or, uh, you know, just, you may not know, i just sort of curious. You're asking me a second to the political realm. <laughs> Well, I've childhood in Denmark. My mother was born in Denmark, and I think spent a lot of my childhood there. It's, it's a more open culture. Um, it's a more open culture. Um, so uh, I think that was part of it. I've been apologized for the distress in other places. It seems much more acceptable. We're uh, getting there. We're catching up. We're a little behind them, but we're catching up. Um, I think it also helps that you know having that nationalized help for this system. Allows you to access the manager care and very well. Thank you for your comments. So I just want to um, reiterate and underline Richard comments, um appreciating your actors to yourself about this and uh, and then bringing that back to further patients and Thank you.